Welcome to Radio Survivor. This is the show about radio that matters, from college radio to community radio to great internet radio to commercial radio that, uh, that speaks to communities and podcasting, of course. We cover it all. My name is Paul Reesmanel. I am one of your hosts. My name is Eric Klein. I'm another one of your hosts and producers of this community radio podcast production. And we're joined on the line by, by Jennifer. Yes, I'm Jennifer Waits, one of the co-founders of Radio Survivor. We're so glad to have you for the full show here, Jennifer. And coming up, uh, you're going to tell us about the first conference held by the Radio Preservation Task Force. Uh, which works with the Library of Congress. The conference was titled Saving America's Radio Heritage, Radio Preservation, Access, and Education. And you're going to tell us, well, why this is important and uh, give us some highlights. So we're definitely uh, looking forward to that. Yeah, and everything also- about that string of words just warms my heart. And, <laughs> and if you're listening to Radio Survivor, I'm going to assume that that's also something that's piqued your interest. So, so stay imagine, tuned because Jennifer was me, there. Yeah, and imagine me being there. <laughs> yeah, literally looking forward to hearing wow. about it. Yeah. And later in the show, uh, John Anderson will join us, professor at Brooklyn College, to talk about uh, the FCC's recent action with regard to pirate radio. He's going to kind of uh, dissect it and they, explode they sent a little out, bit for they us. They sent out a weird letter? I don't know about weird, but they sent out a letter. I'm going to call it weird. <laughs> they sent a out a letter, but we'll let, <laughs> we'll let we'll let John tell us more about that when he when he joins us uh, later in the show. First, I want to do some follow-up. So we've been following the story of the new performance royalties, which small and medium-sized webcasters have to pay. That is threatening to put many of them out of business. And one of the big uh, webcasting companies also went out of business called Live 365. Um, And it hosted small, medium, and large webcasters. And they had a loss of funding. So they had investors, they lost some investors, and then they also saw these new royalty rates on the horizon that were going to be as much as 10 times as much for a lot of their clients, and they went out of business January 31. So the first two months of 2016 have been a very monumental uh, change in the the medium-sized and tiny webcasting community. Yeah, thousands of stations, it seems, have gone off the air as a result of this. Many stations migrated to a newer platform called Radionomy. And this is a Belgian-based company that provides webcasting services. A little different than Live 365 because it's been offering these webcasting services for free. Ad-supported, is that correct? It's ad-supported. So not everybody can sign up. Uh, you have to have a certain size of audience or attract a certain size of audience within a certain mm-hmm. amount of time. So if you only have like uh, you know a dozen listeners constantly, they're going to dump you. So clearly that's part of the ad support. No business. tiny webcasters. No Mediums, tiny webcasters. Medium-ish. Small, large, small, medium-ish. <laughs> um, and what they say is that they will cover these royalties. So they don't charge you for the webcasting service. And they don't charge you for the royalties. So your royalties are covered. And and how this all works has been a question that you've been trying to chase down uh, here on the podcast since you've been covering the story in 2016. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
lots of readers have contacted me saying, how is this, how is this possible? How is this happening? Why aren't they sort of buckling under the weight of these royalty payments? Because it it appeared to be a solution, right? If, if things were looking very bad for webcasters, small and medium sized webcasters in 2016, Radionomy offered safe Harbor hope. And, Many webcasters I heard from were skeptical. They were they worried a little bit. <laughs> skeptical that, bunch. In part because Radionomy isn't based in the U.S., right? So they wondered, are they are they relying on some sort of uh, uh, some kind of loophole that they think they found? Belgian royalty rates. Yeah, I mean, you know, and 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 the answer is I don't know. And I had contacted the company and did not get a response. Well, news came down on uh, <laughs> on. That on February 26th, four major recording labels in the U.S. filed suit in federal court of Northern California, charging Radiotomy with violating Mm. their copyright, with copyright infringement. That's interesting just to note that Radiotomy was on their radar. Well, Radiotomy is a big company, and it, it it gets even more sort of interesting as we go through this. So the four record labels are Arista Records, LaFace Records, Sony Music, and Zamba Records. And they allege that stations hosted by Radionomy have played music owned by them but have not paid statutory performance royalties in the U.S. since, they say, late 2014. Okay, going back. Yes. The suit also alleges that some stations available on Radionomy don't even qualify for statutory licensing. Because they stream the music of a single artist. And that is actually prohibited under the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. If you want to have a single artist station, you must get the agreement of whoever owns that artist's copyright. uh, Whether it's the artist himself or herself or the record label or some combination therein. All the more curious, at least in this suit, is that the plaintiffs, the record labels, say that Radionomy admits to not paying royalties. So this is out of the actual lawsuit filing. Quote, in fact, however, defendants do not and have admitted, have admitted to plaintiffs that they do not comply with any such requirements. They have no license or authorization to reproduce, publicly perform, and or display plaintiffs' copyrighted works in the U.S. Moreover, defendants, radionomy, have refused to comply with plaintiffs' requests and demands to remove the infringing works from defendant's service and or to cease streaming or allowing their users to stream, reproduce, publicly perform, or display plaintiffs' copyrighted works on their service. End quote. That's right out of the lawsuit. Wow. Um, so the labels right now are asking for unspecified monetary damages as well as a permanent injunction against radionomy, at least in, in the United States. Um. It's very, very interesting that I find that if it's true that they were not only not paying but admitting that they aren't paying these royalties uh, is is odd. And that's I, I don't not, really know what to make of when it. When you looked up the information that was available on Radionomy's website, didn't wasn't it there says, a suggestion it's, and that it's they still were there? Paying? No, it says there it says that music licensing coverage, and this is right off their website. Um, and you can find I, I linked to this at uh, radiosurvivor.com. Quote, we cover all the music licensing necessary to stream online. You just program the music and content you have, end quote. Wow. That's right they, on the site. Did Radionomy ever pay in the past? Well, it says that, uh, yeah, according to the suit at least, that they have not paid since late 2014, which implies that they were paying prior to late 2014. Interesting. 
All the more curious is that the majority owner of Radionomy is a French multinational known as Vivendi. Vivendi owns the Universal Music Group, which is the largest major label in the world. Uh, another wrinkle. How exciting. <laughs> so it's all the more of a strange twist that a company which <clears throat> ostensibly makes most of its money from intellectual property, at least a portion of that being things like statutory performance royalties, in, at least in the U.S., is itself not paying these royalties uh, on at least the music from other labels. I did get a response from Radionomy and they said they have no comment. Recently. Do, yes. Uh, prior uh, to this episode. Prior, yeah. As I was writing this, uh, you know, as I was researching this, I sent them an email. I got an email the next day and they said that they do not respond, uh, make comments on pending lawsuits. But you've been trying to talk to them prior to the lawsuit. <laughs> yeah, I, I had sent them many missives asking to, to, for them to comment on, on how on, – specifically that question on could they provide – what assurance they could provide – a webcaster because there is some there was some question uh, which I cannot and I, I have the same question uh, if you had a, a station that you moved to radionomy and it turned out that radionomy were not paying the royalties the royalties were not properly paid under whatever circumstances could you personally be held liable right and that's the big question and, and, for and, a medium sized webcaster yeah at the moment I mean it does not look as though uh, anyone is suing the individual station operators themselves but I, we we know nothing more than that. Um, this answers a question I had that I expressed, I think, uh, earlier on on the podcast and in a piece I wrote for Radio Survivor, where I wondered out loud, are these new royalty rates going to create a new class of essentially pirate internet radio right. stations, small stations that try and fly under the radar uh, and just simply don't pay these royalties because they're too expensive? Yeah, since since these web streams are serving some communities, they're going. They have, they they're probably going to end up existing, either legally or as yeah. Pirates. Will, they, will they will they find a way to to sort of operate quietly or with subterfuge? But my question was, if if they're found, you know, who who is going to who's going to be the enforcement agent, right? Because so it is not uh, the government. There's no FCC of Internet Radio. There's no government of agency world Internet Radio, or even American Internet Radio, that's going to go and 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 sniff out violations. It would be up to copyright holders to to find these folks. So I wondered if Sound Exchange, which collects performance royalties on behalf of artists, could be such an enforcement agent. And it's there's questions about that. And I also wondered out loud with the record labels. Well, it seems that we have an answer that at least. When it comes to Radionomy, which is a large host and provider, uh, the record labels <laughs> have decided to take it into their own hands and file suit because they are the owners of these copyrights, which they allege are being infringed. So we'll continue to follow this story. Yeah, if you, the the twists and turns have been really exciting uh, as far as a radio journalist is concerned. I hope everyone else involved is not feeling any heartburn over it. But if you want to follow along with where we've gone chasing this story down, every single episode of 2016 has, Just featured, about. has featured some amount of reporting and or uh, speculation. And we continue to report on uh, at the website, radiosurvivor.com. And if you click on internet radio in the main menu, you can see our coverage, uh, ongoing coverage of this issue. And of course, we'll put it all in our show notes for this episode at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Well, let's turn to some, I hope, much happier news. 
Uh, Jennifer, we'd love to hear some about the Radio Preservation Task Force Conference called Saving America's Radio Heritage, Radio Preservation, Access, and Education. And, I mean, Jennifer, can you give us just like a, a real quick capsule of what is the work of the Radio Preservation Task Force? What, what, what is it trying to do? Well, it's trying to um, identify and preserve radio collections, basically. So a number of scholars are on the task force working together to find radio archives that are out there um, and then work together to catalog a list of those archives. And is it just sound or uh, what what, what constitutes a radio archive? Primarily, but um, there's so many things that can be associated with recordings like paper playlists, photographs. Um, So all of that is interesting too. But I think maybe the urgent thing that the task force was concerned with was endangered collections. So recordings that might be in danger of heading to dumpsters or in danger of deteriorating. Yeah. Magnetic tape, uh, not in a freezer. Right. Tends to flake over time and lose its magnetism. Exactly. Yeah. Or even, you know, even more recent formats. Um, some people were making copies of things on cassette or DAT or mini disc, um, and and some of those f- formats are even hard to play back because um, people don't have machines, that many machines anymore to play those materials. Right. And when it comes to digital audio tape and mini disc, they don't manufacture machines any longer either. Right. Yeah. So we heard stories about people hoarding equipment, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so that things could be played back and preserved in other ways. So, so yeah, that's kind of the primary activity. Um, and then there's an idea that we can work together to also figure out ways that these collections of audio materials can be used in classrooms and by scholars. So, you know, we don't just want things to be saved and preserved and locked away. It'd be really great if people had access to all of this material. So there were a lot of conversations at the conference about that too. So fueling both teaching and scholarship. Mm Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And so this uh, is hosted by the Library of Congress, um, and, uh, the confer- and the conference was held in Washington, D.C. You know, about how many people were there? So it was around 300 people. Um, wow. And, I wanna, and it was actually at um, – so it was February 26th and 27th, and there were also some field trips the day before optional field trips that people could go on. Um, the 26th that was held at the Library of Congress – and on the 27th, the conference was held at University of Maryland at College Park and hosted by the Hornbake Library, which has some amazing um, digital, amazing preservation efforts and radio collections are, are housed at University of Maryland. So it was appropriate to have part of the conference there as well. I want to hear all about that. <laughs> I know. Yeah, I mean... I don't know. My head is swimming. It was, it was a really exciting, the whole conference was an exciting opportunity to get together with so many people who are passionate about radio and archives. Um, so it was, you know, two full days of workshops, panel discussions, people presenting their research about, um, very in-depth areas of study in radio. So some of that was bringing to light, you know, here's an example of, an interesting, um, uh, an interesting radio personality that we wouldn't know about if we didn't have these archives that, you know, of his radio shows. So were there, I mean, does anything like that come to mind? Was there any 
uh, archive or or um, you know set of materials about something that you found particularly interesting? Well, I was excited. I mean, there was a lot that was exciting. Um, there were people from the Pacifica Radio Archives and uh, ah, a who great, was there? Um, ah, Brian. I can't, I can't call it to mind Mark? immediately. I think it was Brian. Sorry, um, my friends, my friends from Pacific Radios. Brian DeShazer, probably. Yes, who's super nice. Um, yes, he is. So the uh, there was a presentation about the Pacifica Radio Archives, um, specifically about their collection of materials related to gay and lesbian um, experiences. So um, they sort of provided a historical timeline of of some of the programming that had aired over Pacifica stations dating back to the 1950s, I think. Um, and Pacifica has, oh, I don't know, like tens of thousands of reel-to-reel tapes. Yeah, I've been in the vault in Los Angeles. It's beautiful. So it's incredible. You know, so that's just a slice of it, but that um, that a radio group could have all of this documentation of, of an important part of our um, culture and gay and lesbian culture. And I think stemming from some of that, there were, um, radio collectives starting in the seventies that would produce programming, um, geared towards gay and lesbian groups. So that I thought was super interesting. Yeah. it's, Um, It's amazing that, um, things that were on the fringe that now as history, as history marches on, we can recognize belong in the mainstream, but there was a time where, uh, nobody on the radio would talk about, gay issues ever in the 80s let's say or the 70s or the, 70s. Or the 60s but pacifica radio <laughs> or the 50s, yeah. right. but pacifica radio was doing it then and so there's a there's a document there's an oral document that um is one of a kind in the pacifica radio archives i i, I can't i had to take that opportunity to talk it up because that's really that sounds really fun and that's and that's part of what's important about the whole radio preservation task force is that much of our history is in audio format and and some of it is just hidden away. So if you start to digitize and make transcripts and make available a lot of this interesting programming from the past, um, we just learn more about about the history of the United States and various subcultures and communities. Yeah. Um, you know, and so that cuts across college radio, community radio, religious radio, I saw a really fascinating presentation about this superstar um, radio evangelist who started, I think, in the 1930s, and he ended up having his programming broadcast all over the country and all over the world over shortwave. Um, so it's you know some of it is just kind of uncovering some of these hidden stories that that we might not be aware of. Um, it made me more interested in the overall history of religious radio when I saw the presentation about that superstar preacher. Now, was everyone there on the task force or was this a broader kind of congregation of people interested in uh, preservation? Well, so it was – the conference was open to the public, um, but also there were many attendees who are members of the task force so um, around 100 different institutions sent people to the conference and from a wide array, you know, lots of people who are affiliated with universities. That's largely what the task force is made up of. People from archives, so Studs Terkel Archives, Pacifica Radio Archives, the Smithsonian, 
Library of Congress, the WNYC archives. There were people there from radio stations and organizations, um, quite a number of people from NPR, as you might imagine. So jealous. I wish I could be in a room full of radio archivists right now. Uh, I know. I mean, the conversations in the hallway, we were all just amazed. Um, There were people there from radio stations. So a number of college radio stations had representatives, WPRB, WNYU, Hunter College. um, And those are all stations in kind of the northeast there. Yeah. um, Somebody came from the station in Rochester. um, WFMU, Ken Friedman was there. Um, the CEO of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters was there too, which was great. Um, and then people from some radio societies, as well as a bunch of uh, media. So C-SPAN was there filming the first day with very bright lights. Good old C-SPAN. <laughs> um, but that was exciting, you know, to think that we could watch the opening day. I'm not sure how much of it they filmed, but at least the opening keynote, C-SPAN was there. Um, and folks from Radio World were there, and I think Parade Magazine and a variety of other media organizations. So quite a range of people, um, many people with college radio pass. There were sort of a few instances where, like in, in one room, a bunch of people were mentioning where they had done college radio. And so I asked, how many people in here did college radio? And about 90, 95% of the hands. It's a gateway drug. It is. Um, And there were people there who have been on the Radio Survivor podcast. So um, John Anderson was there. He's on the task force. Christopher Terry is also on the task force. Um, So it was cool. Like some of these people I've met in person before, but there are other people who I've been radio friends with for years, and we finally got to meet in person. So I was downright giddy. And so – were there any big takeaways? So, you know, if, if you think about, you know, whether it's it's an overarching theme or just uh, some, you know, facts or something that you think, you know, really kind of dr- would drive it home for, for a Radio Survivor listener, someone who is either in radio, you know, I think many of our – many of the folks who listen are in radio or, or folks who are just truly enthusiastic about radio or podcasting for that matter. Yeah. I mean, first of all, radio is worth preserving. Um, I mean, that's kind of obvious maybe to me, but right to, um, to us, it's obvious, but why, you know, it's worth preserving. It's not- um, and that includes its history, um, but also it's present. So there were some, um, panels that were talking about digitization and metadata. Um, there were students there from college radio stations who were concerned about, how do we start archiving now? So, 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 so when you talk about these are presentations about digitizing and metadata, I mean, that sounds kind of abstract. Does that mean that, that they were trying to come help people come up with actual ways to do this now? Metadata being, which is information about what it is you're recording, essentially, right? Yeah, basically the name of the guest, their job title. All that title, stuff that goes along date, with it. The, the catalog. date that it was recorded yeah. and the producer's yeah. names. And these are things that archivists are concerned about because if you're um, making copies of things for scholars and and – for people to use in the future, you want to make sure you've got tons of information so that material can be found later. So are they working on like best practices then? I mean, is a part of this, uh, you know, trying to help a station, you know, maybe coming up with a set of rules or, 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 or or processes that a station, a community station, a public station, a college station, a commercial station could, could 
pick up and take up so that they can make their archives more accessible. Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I was not in on that session, but that's my impression that Mm -hmm. that was part of the conversation. Um, some of the other things that we talked about, um, collaboration is really important. Um, a resounding theme was just, you know, a station or an organization might have a lot of material that they want to digitize, for example, and it costs a lot of money. So people talked about how do you fundraise for these sorts of things? How do you find grants? And a lot of times if you collaborate with other groups, um, it might be more likely that you're going to get funding. So that is an important part of it. So like Um, collaborating with other groups, can you, can you give an example? Like who would, uh, if I were in a community station or a college station, who would I collaborate with that would help me get some, I'm assuming you're talking about like grant funding or something like that. Yeah. I mean, you might want to collaborate with an overarching, um, community radio organization and maybe they can help pull together a few stations to apply for, yeah, you know, to apply for a grant like National Federation of Community Broadcasters. Or, or with a library or something like that. Yeah, and I think libraries are really – can really be your friends. Um, for college radio stations, I'm always encouraging them to speak with their university archivists because sometimes campus libraries will have personnel or funds to do some of these projects. Um, so if your radio station just kind of off – on a corner of campus trying to do this by yourself, that's probably not the best strategy. You know, working with your school can be a great idea. And then also you can get materials into a safer place, like a climate controlled location and have people working with you who are thinking about these things like metadata, as I mentioned. (laughs) Um, um, Some of the other things that I thought were really interesting that warmed my heart, um, a number of people, even people from the Library of Congress mentioned that collectors are really vital to preservation projects. And they gave kudos to people who were collecting air checks. And, you know, there are these communities. um, Now you find a lot of these communities on the internet where people are sharing air checks of radio stations that they've found. So you're you're talking about like a person listening at home, uh, pressing play and pressing record on a cassette perhaps, and just keeping, keeping their favorite show archived personally. And sometimes those are the only copies of, of radio shows. So um, it was nice to hear kudos being ga- given to collectors. Um, and also praise was given to radio station engineers, which I, I'm fully in favor of this praise because um, somebody mentioned that engineers are often the ones who are rescuing things from the dumpsters when, like, think of a big commercial radio station that is sold and there are new owners that come in who don't care about any of the archives or the history of the station. But an engineer might have been there for years and might really care about this history. So often those are the folks who are bringing their car next to the <laughs> dumpster and collecting the materials. Yeah, not asking permission. <laughs> right. Yeah, or, or collecting it right instead of the dumpster. I think that's really fascinating. That that it, So it sounds as if there's a strain in which some of these archives are – for lack of a better word, they're unofficial, right? So, yeah. so they're these these amateur collectors, and it's the the trading of air checks goes back decades and decades. People used to do it through classified ads in various specialty like publications and zines. I remember in the earlier days of the internet, so before you know, say in the nineties, before you could easily share an MP three file or share audio, people used 
news groups. They use discussion groups as a way to share back and forth and trade tapes via snail mail. You know, so you'd send some send off a box of tapes to somebody and they'd send you a box of tapes full of air checks. And often because people are interested not just in the shows that they want to hear like all of the uh, imaging. So all the IDs, the stingers, they want to hear commercials. They want to hear certain – like there's all these sorts of very uh, arcane kind of subcategory interests that, that folks have. And some of the stuff has made it online but I suspect probably – I mean it, a lot of it hasn't because the individual collector faces that same challenge in, digi- in digitization that uh, anyone else faces or any station faces. Not and, to mention you know, Boxes licensing. and boxes and boxes of cassettes that they uh, – to uh, turn into MP3s or WAV files or whatever. Or YouTube. I've seen them on YouTube. Yeah, that's right. Was there any mention of YouTube? Because uh, you're right. I see a lot of air checks on YouTube now. Old ones. Yeah. 70s, I mean, 60s. I didn't hear anybody talk about YouTube, but um, there were often simultaneous sessions going on, so I didn't I didn't hear everything. Sure. Um, but I wanted to pick up on something that Eric mentioned about copyright. That was another thing that, um, that was brought up, that, you know, there's a challenge um, – in that, you know, there are some collections that are owned by, let's say, a major network and right. they hold the copyright and they don't necessarily want open access to the materials. So that that's of concern to scholars and archivists who would really rather that more people have access to this material. So, so there was some call for, you know, is there a way that we can have um, – like a Creative Commons type agreement, so that so that people can have access to this material for non commercial uses. Yeah, historical licensing. I learned about this issue a long time ago. That um, an amazing documentary that PBS produced uh, about uh, twenty five years ago on the civil rights movement was they only had temporary licenses for all of the footage that they used of you know, speeches and also archival footage of of these news events were copyrighted elements of the documentary that they no longer owned the license so this documentary uh, eyes on the prize uh, um, was gone it, it could not be publicly viewed legally because of the copyrights held on the footage which which uh what a strange way that history could be lost that it's copyrighted so the, it's, yeah, it's amazing. So when you're talking about th- these copyrights, so you're saying, for instance, a show like Casey Kasem's America's Top 40 or even something like the Rush Limbaugh show, right, which are owned and, and distributed by networks which own the copyright, they may not be – they may have resistance to releasing the contents of their archives to anyone. Is, is that ostensibly what, what, you're, what, yeah. you're, what you're saying? Yeah, I mean that happens in some cases, um, and and so so it's a concern. You know, it's it's important to preserve some of these items, but then it's sort of unfortunate if if we can't ever see but them again. <laughs> even the speeches of some public figures might fall under this weird category, right? And a question I have then about these archives, sort of writ large. I mean, is this something which the Library of Congress wishes people to submit to them? Or is you know is is this sort of a large gathering effort, or is it more about the ability for uh, sort of individual but well cataloged archives to exist, kind of all over the place? Yeah. Does the Library oh. of Congress keep archives of radio? Yeah, 
Yeah, they do. Are, um, now, are they selective or is it – or are they will they take anything? <laughs> That's my question. Uh, well, I mean there were a lot of conversations about this in general that every archive has to make decisions about what to accept. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have to make decisions about what to digitize <laughs> because of, um, of of space constraints, resource constraints. Because oh yeah, it, of, it just isn't free to to just all, do this. All of that, um, and the Library of Congress is doing some digitization on demand, which is kind of interesting to me. I don't I don't fully understand how it happens, but like you might find out that there's something in the Library of Congress's collection that's of interest to you. And you can submit a request to have it digitized. Right. So it'll be um, something which is a pre-existing analog. It could be a film. It could be a, a tape or something like that. And it hasn't yet been digitized, but they yeah. sort of will do it on an on-demand basis. And some of the um, – I had the opportunity to take a field trip to the Library of Congress's – I want to get the name right because it's it's their audio – it's the National Audiovisual Con- Conservation Center – um, it's in Culpeper, Virginia, so like an hour and a half from D.C. in an old Cold War bunker. <laughs> um, Fitting. So I, I talked to some of, the, some of the people there said that there were people working in rooms digitizing things as we came through. And some of them said they actually preferred doing projects where it was a request from somebody as opposed to just sort of the normal work queue uh, because then they knew it was going to be listened to. Right. Like It's like a, an interesting sorting mechanism. Like one person in the world cares about this. Maybe other people in the world will care later. Yeah. And, and I, I wonder, what, was there anyone from the Internet Archive there? Do you know? Not that I know of. That's interesting. I would have – I mean the Internet Archive spans so many different uh, types of media, but – uh, audio and and to, and to some extent radio. There, I mean, no, there's even like a shortwave radio archive at archive.org, and and it's a sort of, I mean, it's it's anyone can contribute to archive.org. It, yeah. It's not a uh, it's it's a much more sort of open ended archive than most giant giant radio survivor fans will remember that the work of Over the Edge is has been fully archived at archive.org, the Internet that's Archive, right. the Negative Land yeah. Show. Yeah, yeah, that's that's worth following up to see, but I. You know, I looked through the list of attendees, and I didn't see anybody mm-hmm. from there in attendance. Um, but I'm, it doesn't mean they weren't there. I always wonder about how the Internet Archive can possibly say yes to everything. I love, I love the fact that they do. I well, know. they don't. They, yeah, because I mean, they they do some of the digitization themselves, but to a large extent, they rely on right. you to have digitized something if you're contributing. There, there's it. an incredible story that's a bit of a tangent, but they there was a collector who might also be labeled a hoarder. I wanted to get that in, that there's a fine line. And I, I encourage more, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> more hoarders to identify as collectors and keep up the good work. There was a woman who kept VHS copies of news of local newscasts. Um, and her son, after she'd passed away, donated it to archive.org, to the Internet Archive, and they digitized it. And it turned out that these newscasts these television newscasts locally produced were just were considered disposable by the people that were producing them it wasn't until a collector held on to them for a few decades that the that the historical value was recognized and then preserved especially in in the 70s when videotape became common in television um it was considered too expensive they reused the tapes over right. and over and over again. Yeah, so this woman so no made one would VHS ever keep copies a whole, at home. Uh, yeah, it wasn't really until the 80s and really was CNN, which was a pioneer 
in the idea of, oh, we'll actually save all of this and index it and catalog it. And then CNN actually was one of the first to digitize it all. But but it just gives you an idea of how for so long, much much of this was considered ephemeral, even things which seem in retrospect, it seems obvious that it was important. Like you might have wanted, uh, you know, a videotape of the newscast during the Three Mile Island incident yeah. or any number of, of other sort of you know big local news events that probably wasn't preserved because it just it wasn't it wasn't the practice but my question for you Jennifer is did you hear any anecdotes or stories like success stories or you know any any anecdotes about how you know a preservation effort or or the existence of archive kind of led to something really concrete or something amazing oh well um i guess like in the context um I'm co-chair of the College Community and Educational Radio Caucus, which is part of the task force. And so we had a session where we we talked about college radio and a few people gave presentations in which they talked about really tangible projects where they were working to preserve radio history. Um, and so some of those, I think, were great success stories. Um, you know, I know at, at Princeton University, they found reel-to-reels of uh, a student had gone to Woodstock and just started doing interviews there. And they found these reel-to-reels that are his kind of person-on-the-street interviews from Woodstock, um, which is, you know, pretty exciting history to find. Oh, yeah. Um, Tim Brooks from um, – he wrote a book about the history of college radio at Dartmouth. And he pointed out that often when distinguished visitors came to campus, the college radio station might have been – the group that was recording those proceedings. Hmm. So sometimes that's the only document you have of, of these speeches from important luminaries. Um, and I know that was the case at Haverford college too. And, and still haven't really found out if those tapes exist anywhere, but um, anecdotally I've talked to alums who had said that they remembered interviewing some of these famous people who came to campus over the radio Wow. So, so the, and these are efforts which, which in, in this case uh, at Dartmouth, it, it helped obviously feed someone's book that they would have this history in front of them or accessible to them. And then it sounds at, at like at PRB at Princeton now they they've got this other sort of un you know previously undiscovered kind of oral history of sorts, right? Uh, person yeah. in the street of. Of Woodstock, which you know we now look at as, as quite the the uh, momentous historic event, uh, which at the time you know probably there was some guess that it might be momentous, but no one really knew. I want to hear those interviews right now. <laughs> I know I saw the reels. Um, I visited Princeton Station during my trip, and I saw the the reels on a shelf. They have yet to be processed, so it's kind of like ooh, <laughs> exciting. They're excitedly waiting to to um, digitize those. And so, I mean, what are we looking forward to then? Um, is, does it seem as though that, uh, you know, can, can you give a sense, and maybe this is too hard of a question to answer at this point, but uh, of like, wh- what are like next steps? I mean, what, what, what is happening here, uh, you know, in terms of, c- can we expect there to be a, a catalog or, or can we expect there to, you know, is sort of, a radio survivor listener or a radio survivor reader, you know, what kind of tangible effects might I ex- expect to see? Yeah. So, um, this was the first conference for this task force and there was a lot of great conversation, great energy. There are already things happening behind the scenes. Um, 
in the past year, people on the task force have been reaching out to collections um, to generate a list of radio collections that are out there. And, and I know that um, a database is being created that will be available at some point um, so that people can actually look through and see what sorts of radio collections are out there at different institutions and radio stations. Um, and then I mentioned that I'm on the College Community and Educational Radio Caucus. Um, there are a bunch of other caucuses that are focused on different aspects of radio and, you know, from bilingual radio to labor radio to um, women and feminist radio. Hmm. And so all those individual groups are also going to be working really closely together to try to identify radio collections in those specific, like sometimes more marginal areas. So um, that's why I was really pleased to be part of the task force because college radio often is overlooked in conversations about radio history. <laughs> it's usually overlooked. Oh, I didn't know that, Jennifer. That's just, <laughs> just kidding. So... So I think it's good to have these these caucuses so that we can remember to seek out some of these harder-to-find collections um, and bring them to light. Um, I'm, I'm really excited about some of the work people are already starting to do to create curriculum surrounding some recordings that are being found so that, you know, future generations are, are learning to use radio as part of their their lessons. You know, it's not just about reading history in a book, but you know, to hear a speech that was, that aired on a college radio station, you know, with Martin Luther King, you know, like, yeah, or even that's like exciting. A, a news and public affairs program you yeah, know, on, it bring, on the issue. It brings everything to life. Um, and, and even some of the presenters, um, somebody was talking about how it was really eye-opening for one of his students to digitize recordings of a 1970s program about gay and lesbian life that aired on a college radio station, you know, so a 22 year old today, you know, it was amazing for them to hear about, wow, you know, it was really different to be a young gay person in the seventies and, and listening to a radio show on that topic, um, made him, uh, it made him have sort of a deeper understanding of that. Right, because it's sort of it's it's not been reinterpreted for the modern time. Right, it's it's more of a time capsule in a lot of ways, rather than reading a contemporary history, which of yeah. course is written from a perspective which is very different than what than anything that would have been documented and, at that time. And as all radio people know, the emotional weight of the words is being yeah. communicated uh, so much more clearly. Than, than it can ever be on a written yeah. in a written document. So we love radio. Yeah, there was a whole keynote about um, a radio, like the intimacy of radio and the sincerity effect of radio. It's it's different than television, um, and the the microphone, how that that creates this intimacy in a different way. So there there's a different emotional connection when you're listening to radio, for yeah, sure. Absolutely, an well, emotional connection with the past. I like it. Jennifer, we're so glad you were able to go and and represent College Radio and represent Radio Survivor. Um, I hope you uh, gathered some new listeners and readers while you were there, too. <laughs> well, you know, what was really – it warmed my heart. I met a lot of people who are regular readers and listeners to the podcast. So, um, you know, Wonderful. multiple times people came up and said, yeah, they were making their way through some of the episodes they'd missed previously. 
So, so hello. How wonderful. (laughs) It was great. (laughs) It was our people. Wonderful. Well, we're so glad you were able to go. And, uh, you know, definitely, I'm sure you'll be writing more about it uh, in, in your, uh, weekly roundups and you did some tours. I don't want to give any w- more away, but we know <laughs> yeah. you gave some station tours that will, so will, much mystery and we, intrigue we will be sharing oh here on, on the podcast and at radiosurvivor.com and your college radio watch, uh, feature is every Friday. So people can find out about that. Um, but you know, I want to take a moment uh, before John uh, joins us on the show is to tell folks, you know, we'd love to hear from you. Do you know of any archive projects or have you had the opportunity or, or found some great nugget, whether it's in an official archive or our sound check somewhere uh, that somebody uh, or air check that somebody has posted online? Are you a collector? Are you a collector? Do you have a store? Of these I'm things? a collector too. <laughs> uh, let us know. Send us an email to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Of course, comment about anything we talk about on the show. Uh, we we love to hear from you, and uh, we will also share your comments on on the uh, show itself. And sometimes. You know, if you've got a correction, uh, we're glad to share that as well. So send us an email to podcast at radiosurvivor.com. Also, we could use your help and put this pitch out there. We want to take what we're doing here and turn it into a radio show. We want to keep uh, and spread the great love and word of radio. Yeah, a terrestrial show for community radio stations to air every week. So we could use your help with that. Uh, please lend your support. Go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. If you could contribute even one dollar a month that would go a long way towards getting us to our goal just go to radiosurvivor.com slash support and now john anderson joins us on the line our favorite professor from brooklyn college thanks john for joining us it's wonderful to be back and uh, we wanted you to comment because the fcc um they're having some trouble with the uh, with the radio pirates, we might say, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, this week, this past week, they sent out some letters to uh, try and help deal with the pirate radio problem. Can you can you tell us a little bit about this effort? Oh, it's such a hoot! Um, <laughs> it's 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 basically because they have no muscle to actually enforce the law on the ground. I.e., there's not enough in field agents running around to track, you know, identify, locate, and bust pirates. That they've been kind of reduced to uh, putting an educational outreach campaign to ancillary groups, which may be involved. I guess you'd say in aiding and abetting uh, pirate radio stations. Um, so. Basically, they put together uh, this form letter and they sent it out to a large number of national organizations like uh, the Association of National Advertisers and the Association of like Landlords. There's a whole list of, of these 20 industry organizations, uh, club owners, uh, retail, you know, the National Federation of Retailers. And it was the same thing saying, uh, there's a problem that we'd like you to know about and it's pirate radio. And some of the, your constituents, some of your members may unknowingly be involved in this, in this horrible, unlicensed, unlawful activity. And we'd like to school you as to why this is a problem and why you should get involved in the fight to silence these stations. And um, the letters are – I'm trying to figure out how to put this uh, – they make a lot of unjustified claims about harm, about the harm that pirate radio stations do. And they also make 
unjustified claims about the potential for penalty uh, for these organizations and their constituents if they find themselves unwittingly or not involved in business. How would that happen? How does some uh, uh, retail store – or unwittingly find itself in business with pirate radio. Can you can you break down why these groups are considered p- potential possible uh, conspirators? Yeah, I'll give you three examples. The first one is apartment uh, owners, landlords, apartment building owners. Oftentimes, pirate radio stations um, or office building owners. Pirate radio stations need a place to broadcast from, mm-hmm. and it's not tactically advantageous to broadcast from your home because <laughs> if, you're, if your home is raided and the equipment is seized, the FCC and federal marshals have great latitude to seize all of your other belongings. So oftentimes, a pirate radio station will set up in something like an apartment or they'll set up in some office space. And you know, the landlords don't really know what the business is. They'll just say, we're running a radio station. And, and the landlords are like, okay, that's fine. They don't really know anything about the FCC's rules or whatnot. And they'll sign the lease and uh, the pirates will put an antenna up on their roof and they'll start broadcasting and that's that. Um, The other one is uh, local stores, and I'm talking about like the bodega level type stores, where a pirate radio station that serves a distinctive community will go around to the locally owned businesses in that community, many of whom they actually know, and say, hey, I'm running this community radio service for the Haitian-speaking population of Flatbush, New York. Uh, Would you be willing to give us some scratch uh, to help us meet our costs, and in exchange, we will promote your business. So, I mean, it's a small-scale commercial advertising, which ironically is something that large-scale commun- uh, commercial and public broadcasting doesn't even target as a market because uh, it's such small fry. Yeah, right. it's another example that uh, of many where these quote-unquote pirate radio stations are really just acting as community radio stations without the appropriate uh, government permission. And they're also filling an unmet need in the marketplace. And then the third thing is event or venue owners. So oftentimes a a pirate radio station may host uh, a live event with music and it will be a fundraiser of sorts where there will be a cover charge and the cover charge ends up going to pay uh, for the expenses of running the station. And so what these letters are saying is you may find yourself unwittingly being engaged uh, in business uh, with these illegal stations that cause undue harm that you need to know about and if you – are enlightened about it, you will make the moral decision to uh, disassociate your involvement with pirate radio stations, i.e. depriving them of local community revenue, and hopefully you'll take the step of informing us, the FCC, so we can come and get them. Hmm. And what incentive uh, does a local retailer, an apartment uh, building owner, an office building owner, what incentive do they have to, to cooperate to go out of their way in this case and to turn down money <laughs> in some cases uh, if you're an office building owner. Well, you know, I mean right now there's none um, because there is no way to prosecute someone for advertising on a pirate radio station or hosting a, a concert um, for a pirate radio station where that station is not broadcasting from the concert. You know, they haven't set up a transmitter uh, at the venue. However, um, one of the things that – has not yet been announced but is in play is Congress is working on a bill, and this is something that the FCC has has talked about wanting the authority for. They're, they're actually working on a bill which may create penalties for 
uh, people and organizations that quote unquote aid and abet oh. unlicensed broadcasting. Now, this is something that's only been talked about in the most uh, you know generalized way. It's a phrase that's come up in Republican FCC Commissioner Michael Riley's speeches because he's the kind. This is kind of his hobby horse. If it weren't for him, this wouldn't even be on the radar. Um, and he made a speech to the National Association of Broadcasters State Convention a couple of weeks ago in which he said he would like to express gratitude to Congressman Frank Pallone of New Jersey, who is apparently working on legislation to expand or you know, give the FCC new enforcement tools. And I think, I presume, that that tool is a, is a law that's going to attempt to, I don't know, put penalties of some sort down if you do something like, again, quote, aid and abet an unlicensed broadcaster. Mm. John, how, how would you characterize the FCC letter's argument against pirates? What are they saying is the harm? Oh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, I mean, they make unsubstantiated claims of harm. The first one that comes up across both this form letter that they sent out, and then they also attached what they called an enforcement advisory. And it's a, it's a two-page document that, that talks about uh, why pirate radio is a bad thing. The first claim that's uni- universal across all of this and has actually also been mentioned by FCC commissioners is that these stations uh, unduly deprive commercial licensed radio stations of revenue. So they're actually saying that one of the primary sources of harm that pirate radio stations uh, cause is the notion that they are depriving stations of listeners and revenue. Because uh, of all those Geico commercials that the pirate stations well, are running. Well, here's the thing. You know, I mean, okay, so one of the things that pirates do cause, especially in densely populated markets, for example, like New York City, is they cause interference. So, yes, it is true that in certain neighborhoods in Brooklyn, it may be difficult to receive a commercial or public or community radio station because there is a pirate squatting on an adjacent channel. But the kicker is, is that most of the people in that neighborhood weren't listening to those stations in the first place. So they're really not being deprived of listenership and ergo they're not being deprived of revenue. And since the local businesses are supporting the pirates, wouldn't even be approached by the, the commercial licensed stations. There's, this is a false claim. Um, but it's very interesting that it is the top claim that kind of crosses across all of this dialogue. I mean, the radio industry itself has been seeing about a, a 1% decline in revenue uh, over the last uh, few years. And there are many reasons why this has happened, and a lot of them are things that you cover regularly on the show, consolidation, the debt albatross that's hanging over uh, commercial radio industry. But apparently, it would seem that this is the new whipping boy for why the radio industry uh, can't get the revenues it wants. It's because the pirates are just sucking them dry. <laughs> you know? What do you think, John, what do you think prompted this whole um, advisory and letter campaign from the FCC? Well, um, the thing that prompted it primarily was the uh, extreme concentration of unlicensed broadcasters that exist primarily in three markets uh, in the United States. The first is New York and New Jersey, where there are more than 100 uh, unlicensed radio stations on the air in, in this vicinity alone. The other place is Boston and the other place is Miami. And uh, there's such a critical mass of unlicensed radio stations uh, that their presence can no longer be ignored or denied by the local broadcast community. Hmm. And and these are also, I mean, these are large metroplexes. So that there's also, they sort of 
probably these broadcasters and uh, their uh, their elected representatives have some disproportionate uh, sway. I would seem is is that the case? Yeah, and they're also working, you know, in a consolidated fashion. So, one of the things that first kicked this off was all of New York and New Jersey's congressional delegation getting together and signing a letter to uh, you know Tom Wheeler, chair of the FCC, saying hello. Uh, these are the elected representatives that appoint you and ultimately pay your salary. There's a significant problem that you need to pay attention to. And that letter was was drafted and, and sent out uh, mid last year. So that's that was kind of the first shot across the bow where other elements of the government that have direct control over the FCC said you cannot, you know, uh, ignore this problem any longer. Problem is, is that the FCC has been radically downsizing its enforcement abilities. So at the same time as the Congress people in New York and New Jersey were letting the FCC know that there was a problem they needed to address, Tom Wheeler had hired a consultant to basically go through and, and take a, a hatchet uh, to the FCC's field enforcement presence, uh, eliminating two-thirds of the offices, uh, nearly half of the field staff. And uh, so these kind of perfect storm ingredients came together to the point now where the FCC has been reduced to sending nasty grams to suspected potential uh, compatriots or uh, constituents to a pirate radio station. And how effective do you anticipate these letters to be? Do you think it's going to put a big dent into the pirate radio scene, specifically in like, say, say Brooklyn or, or in uh, South Florida? Nah, I don't think it's really going to make much of a difference at all. I mean, for, for again, like we're talking bodega level you know, right. uh, neighborhood club level businesses who are who are not subscribers or members to any of these trade organizations. And, yeah, and a bodega for for people uh, outside of New York City is a mom and pop uh, grocery store or yeah, liquor store, convenience store. Things. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, and they're not members, so they don't care. And the the organization, the trade organizations, have a lot better things to do than get engaged in an esoteric you know, fight over a, a small piece of communications policy. So they'll duly forward this letter onto their members, but it's not like they're going to be actively enlisted into uh, the pirate crackdown that uh, the FCC and the National Association of Broadcasters and National Public Radio and the members of Congress from these metroplexes want. And I mean, unlicensed broadcasting, if I, if I remember correctly, is illegal at a state level in New York, New Jersey and Florida. Isn't that correct? Yes, and Massachusetts has been repeatedly considering a piece of legislation. So in, uh, in New York, New Jersey, and Florida, it's a criminal offense, um, ranging from a misdemeanor to a felony, especially on repeat offenses. The number of people who've been arrested under those laws is infinitesimal, and the number of people who have actually been convicted under the laws, typically they plead to a lesser charge, um, is also uh, very, very, very small. Massachusetts is actually considering a law that would make it a civil offense, and what that would do is it would allow licensed broadcasters to sue mm-hmm. pirates off of the air, which, you know, the pirates don't have a lot of money. So good luck collecting. Uh, yeah, especially if you can even identify who, who, whomever is is operating the transmitter. It seems to me it, uh, then, you know, sort of in New York or New Jersey or Florida, I mean, if you have a state le- – again, I'm not a lawyer nor am I a cop. But if someone's violating uh, a state-level uh, law um, – I mean, you could charge someone else as an accessory, couldn't you? I mean, if you sure, really wanted I mean, to, to, to use a scorched earth tactic. Yeah, but I mean, you know, uh, just here in New York City recently, um, the the New York Police Department decided that they're going to start handing out summonses or, or tickets 
for offenses that they normally would, you know, arrest people and throw them in the Huskow for. And we're talking about things like drinking in public and even public urination. Um, so it's not like busting pirates, even though the law enables the NYPD to do so. They have no, they have no interest in doing it. They don't know anything about pirate radio. Um, they certainly don't want to attack what is in many respects in these neighborhoods, you know, a community media institution. So uh, it's – the laws are on the books, but, you know, they're, they're almost unenforceable in and of themselves. So is this really just a uh, flag to the uh, broadcast industry from the FCC saying, eh, we're taking you serious, guys. Really, really, we're taking this seriously and we're doing something. Yeah, I mean, absolutely it is because they're getting an incredible amount of political pressure. I am very, very uh, surprised. It's remarkable the amount of political pressure that is coming to bear on the Federal Communications Commission over something like this. But if the broadcast industry wants something to happen on this, there's two things they need to do. Um, thinking kind of like, you know, trying to think like they would. The first one is get Congress to pass a law that would somehow criminalize or penalize people for aiding and abetting, which has a ton of potential legal concerns attached to it. And the other one is to actually demonstrably demonstrate, you know, sorry, demonstrably demonstrate the harm that these stations are causing. They say they deprive stations of advertising revenue. Show me the money. They say that stations uh, cause interference to license stations' emergency alerts uh, signal uh, uh, transmissions. Show me evidence of that. They say that there can even be a public health and safety issue because these you know, transmitters are putting out radiation in the form of you know, FM signals. Okay, prove it. Do the science. Show me the math. And they have not done that yet. So all of these claims are incredibly specious. I'm kind of surprised the FCC has adopted them and you know, kind of made them part of the policy discussion. But this is, this is where we're going. So, John, for, for us here in the Radio Survivor community, we care about community radio. We care about, we care about uh, these pirates. What is, what is the solution to, so that they can continue to broadcast without, without doing it illegally? Uh, there isn't one. I mean, the, the best possible solution that there was was low-power FM radio. Um, and uh, the pirates that currently exist right now that are causing all of the hoopla are pirates that are existing in areas where the LPFM rules don't allow new radio stations to exist and never will. Secondly, uh, the low-power FM uh, law, Local Community radio, radio Act, still contains that provision I was talking about a couple of weeks ago in which if you are identified or you know, deemed right. with, with operating a pirate station, you're automatically disqualified on some sort of moral ground from holding an FCC license. So there is no uh, enforceable or you know, developable policy mechanism to bring these people into the fold. So they must operate outside the law. Yeah. And in fact, uh, we've documented at Radio Survivor, there's been two or three um, LPFM applicants who have had their applications uh, denied because uh, of de- demonstrated evidence that huh. they were involved with unlicensed broadcasting. But, and, and, there were, and there were two or three or more LPFM applicants who got their licenses, even though hmm. – they were involved in unlicensed broadcasting before, but provided enough separation uh, documentarily that they they get to keep their licenses. So that's a wash. I still want to press you, though. I know. So you've established that there's no easy way to to um, 
to to square the circle to allow um, these these broadcasters to continue um, under under the law. But but what if I gave you a magic wand to solve the problem and to to not squash the community radio, um, but also to um, to come up with a solution? What would it be? Um, about a little over a year ago at this point now, I wrote a blog post where I um, raised the notion of implementing a strategy of harm reduction uh, into the pirate radio problem. You know, there, I, look at, I look at unlicensed broadcasting as kind of part of the human communicative condition. Uh, you're never going to get rid of it because there's always people that are going to do it for a variety of reasons. It's kind of like, you know, teenage pregnancy. Teenagers will be teenagers, hormones will be hormones, and you can do as much in abstinence or other forms of sex education as you can, but there's still going to be unplanned pregnancies. And we've developed a system by which we provide tools to minimize that harm. Um, the same thing applies to something like you know heroin addiction. Um, that is an extreme a piece of the human condition that a lot of people simply cannot uh, come back from. So one of the ways by which you minimize the suffering and the addictive qualities of heroin is by, you know, providing uh, methadone. Uh, you also do things uh, to help uh, stave off uh, complications from heroin addiction. So you provide free needles and syringes. And if you think back in history, the first people that tried to provide birth control to teenagers and the first people who attempted to run needle exchange clinics out of vans and street corners were considered aiding and abetting, you know, illegal or illicit behavior. Right. And, and so I think that there's a lot of uh, lessons that we can actually learn from the whole philosophy of harm reduction that could basically allow these stations to exist in some sort of gray area um, with the advice and maybe not direct assistance of licensed broadcasters in the FCC, but in some sort of way that it can be manageable at a community level. Decriminalize would, the pirate radio. To some degree, I would like to see, uh, especially in New York, I think there should be, if, if it was above board and there was a harm reduction paradigm in place, perhaps you could get a council of unlicensed broadcasters together to frequency coordinate so that they're not stamping on each other's toes and they're using the best frequencies that are available that minimize the amount of interference. Yeah, and I um, remember six months ago you were telling us that if they were not so underground that these some of these stations could site their antennas in a slightly better location and, yeah. and interfere less with the commercial broadcasters. Yeah, and engineers could go around and make sure that the people running the dirtiest transmitters that are actually causing the most egregious interference stop doing that. Um, so there's a lot of things that could be done between an all or nothing enforcement approach, but we're simply not there. And I, I understand. I think in Japan there is uh, a, basically a, a unlicensed low power service um, that allows you to operate at a slightly higher power than you could here in the U.S. I mean, you can do so. So-called Part 15 uh, stations operate without a license because it's basically it's not really they're not really broadcasting so much as it's it's considered unintended radiation for mm. all intents and purposes like little transmitters you might use in your car to right. to get your you know your your iPhone onto your stereo in Japan I understand the the power level there's an actual class of service the power level is a little higher so you can basically operate a low powered uh, community station without a license. I mean, it, it probably still much less power than a lot of the folks in Brooklyn or or Miami are using. But I suppose that could be a, a kind of uh, a, a, an out as well, especially if you therefore could buy legally, you know, equipment specifically to, made to operate in that band or in that service. 
Well, I mean, both of the you know geographies that you're talking about are extremely population dense, um, and and you know I think admittedly many pirates, especially in New York, may be running more power than they need to because they're trying to burn through interference or whatnot. Their antennas are not sighted high enough. Um, so yeah, I think something like that uh, could be conceived of and debated. But there's this whole notion that having a license is the inviolable golden ticket that you must have in order to use the public airwaves. And a hundred years of regulatory history, um, you know, we're fighting against that. And uh, that's something that's down the road, probably even further than even beginning to consider notions of harm reduction would be. But I like where you're going. You right. Know? Well, so John, we can wish. Sorry, go ahead, Jennifer. Oh, it, so I'm curious. Is this a growing problem? Like, are there more pirates in Brooklyn now than there were a year ago? Like, what is the state of of pirate radio? Yeah, um, it's been growing for the last 10 or 15 years, and some of the oldest pirate stations on the air started in the early 90s. Wow. Um, so there has been – and New York, if you actually look at the history of pirate radio in New York, there's always been – interesting, popular pirates in a lot of the different boroughs. The number of pirates has really exploded in the last 10 or so years, but it's only within the last, you know, say two or three uh, that the problem has come to the attention of licensed broadcasters and others who are now making it an issue. But it's not like there has been some massive invasion of, of immigrant stations that are somehow, you know, blanketing the FM dial and the number one media market with interference. No, it's, it's not like that. I don't think it's ever going to get like that. Um, but that's the way the perception is being managed here. Got it. Well, John, thank you for putting the FCC's letter writing campaign in perspective. And I hope that, uh, if there is movement in Congress on this proposed uh, statute to uh, to sort of put in law what uh, this letter threatens uh, to to make people guilty of accessory to pirate radio, we hope you'll uh, keep us informed and let us know about that. Absolutely, I'm looking forward to going to prison. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you think, I mean, you think write, our whole podcast a, could be could be we could considered accessories? <laughs> I write, I write a blog on this. I, I, you know, when, when all of this was starting to percolate, I actually wrote something saying, this is what pirate radio stations should do to prepare for a bust and defend against one. So I guess in some ways I'm already aiding and abetting them. So yeah. Hi mom. I'm in jail. <laughs> the pirate radio cookbook. <laughs> it, it makes it. Yeah. It made me think that like in a different fantasy world, um, uh, everyone having the ability to broadcast a little bit of radio uh, could be a part of the First Amendment, you know, landscape of the country. Like it doesn't it doesn't necessarily have to have been this way, right? No. Other futures are possible. Yep. Well, thank you, and uh, folks can read your writings on this topic and many more, including things like digital radio and other aspects of broadcasting at DIYmedia.net. Uh, thank you, John, and thank you, Jennifer, for joining us today uh, at Radio Survivor. Thank you. Always a pleasure.